0: This is Annie Grace, and you are listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, everyone! Welcome to this Naked Mind podcast with Annie Grace. And today, like I'm so excited, I'm so excited that I just say "like," which I really try not to say. But um, today, I'm here with Dr. Amy Johnson and. Literally, this book is her book, and this book is unreal. If you have not picked up this book yet, you need to read it. It's called The Little Book of Big Change. And Amy, your insight into willpower and thought processes and how to not let habits overcome you and also just your incredibly positive approach. I mean, I have chills because this book was it's just phenomenal. I I was recommended to read it by some readers. I read it about a month and a half ago and you might be able to see here, but I like to, when I like something, I like to like put the page (laughs) and literally how many pages have I marked, right? Like it's just been such a great book. But anyway, would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about you and how you came to write it and everything else in that?
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and, um, you know, it's really cool when I, I just came across you and your book fairly recently too. And it's just so awesome to find that thing. That's like, wow, there's so much overlap. And I've been, I'm just getting into your book, but just in the beginning, if I could show you my Kindle, it's all highlighted too, just that's like so that. So cool. <laughs> and it's just so cool to see the synergy and the overlaps. And it, and it, as as a person that does this, I'm sure you feel the same way. It like, Really, just feels like oh, like we're onto something real here, you know. Like everybody has their own unique ways of talking about it, their own stories, their own language, but there's such a core that that's in common with you and I and so many other people that we've learned from and that we call upon, you know. And it's I don't know, I love that. It's so cool to see that. So um, yeah. So I'm happy to be here and to to know you and talk with your people and um, yeah. So I. Um, I've been a coach and a psychologist for quite a while. And um, as I wrote about in the book, I struggled with my own habits. So really anxiety was sort of the the core of all of my stuff. And I feel like I just um, was a very anxious child. And that that went into some pretty severe anxiety when I was in graduate school, Um, panic disorder, all kinds of diagnoses, you know, and did what I could to just kind of, you know, struggle through that mindset, my way through that positive think, my way through it, and um, and then anxiety kind of morphed into other things, other habits like smoking and drinking and binge eating, which was my big one. So I was in this binge eating habit for eight years, and so frustrating because I knew better. I was out there at that point helping other people. I mean, talk about feeling like a huge imposter and fraud, yeah. you know, like the thing is, I, I could see that I was able to help other people. Yet it was such a weird cognitive dissonance thing in my head. Cause I'm like, why can't I get my stuff together? Like, what is this? You know, why am I doing this? And so like most hardworking people, um, I just kept trying harder and harder right. <laughs> and pulling in more resources and trying more things, you know, and most of those things would give me a little bump. They definitely give me some hope initially, like oh maybe this will be the thing, you know. And then I'd feel kind of hopeful, and on that maybe ride that that wave of hopefulness for maybe a few days or a few weeks. But then when I came crashing down, when I would relapse, um, it you know it left me feeling lower than before. So I'm like oh now what? There's another thing that failed, you know. So I really kind of quickly saw wow. The harder I work and the more I use willpower, the less this goes in my favor in the big term, in the big picture. Um, And so I, you know, several years ago now, six, seven years ago now, came across this understanding of, of, uh, it's really kind of a new paradigm for psychology, like how our mind works. And it's a spiritual and a psychological kind of understanding of things and neuroscience, it all kind of comes together. And for me, that just did it. It's like I had some insights. And it was just easy. I just saw it differently, fairly quickly, not instantly. Um, and it was easy. And so in the years since then, I've just looked at that a lot and tried to see, like, how can we break it apart and dissect it so that we can share this with other people?
0: Yeah, I, I love that. Something you said about, you know, these these ideas, um, we're talking about them, obviously, in our own language. And and you and I, like, it, it's, it's uncanny how much, uh, I'd say, core themes are in common in our book, like you say. And and we've never met before, and I never read read your book before, and you haven't read mine yet, and we're so so that to me just says that we're coming on some truth, right? Like it feels yeah. very true to me, and I think similarly in my experience, you know, trying with willpower just set me up for complete failure, and it's what what you're you know it it made me feel really worthless as a human, like because yeah, I had my. Crap together in all these other areas of my life, and and yet drinking was my thing, and I, you know, I couldn't get it together with that one area because it was what I really relied on. And again, similar to you, I come from you know anxiety, depression, history, and that was that was how I was self medicating, which was really interesting. So let's get into some of these sort of sort of core principles because I love how you explain. Um, you know, one of the things I really like is just this idea of how much effort it takes to actually combat a thought. So could you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. So um when it looks like our thinking is dangerous and you know, it looks like that to everyone on earth. So I'm not like, and to me too, half the time still, you know what I mean? Like we can know better, but we're still human beings having this extremely vivid experience of life that comes from our own heads. And it doesn't look like it comes from our own heads. It doesn't look like some little thought. It looks like, oh my gosh, this is life. And this is me and all, you know, it just looks so vivid and real. But when when we're in that place of misunderstanding how our experience works and how safe it truly is. And, you know, we can talk more about that, but when we get caught up in that and it looks scary, of course we're going to do things. We're going to do anything we can to make it go away, to change it, to try to feel better. If, if our, you know, affirmations don't work and all of our thought changing doesn't work and all our willpower doesn't work, then we'll drink or eat because Hey, we know we're meant to feel good and that's torture. (laughs) So I think it's so cool to see. Yeah. Like our, our thinking comes up and it, it, it's just so real. And we're always just doing the best we can. It's just that for most of us and for me too, for a really long time, the best we can do looked like, Oh, well let's change this thought or let's, Let's, you know, go for it. Like they say, take a bubble bath, go for a walk, journal. And it's like, sorry, (laughs) that's not cutting it here.
0: I love that because um, there's so much that you touched on. Like in, in your book, you talk about this idea of you are whole, human. You are okay, human. You are not, you know, flawed. You are simply doing the best that you can do in every given moment. And when you look at it that way, so say you're having a really long, hard day and your kids are getting on top of you and you have this incredible amount of conditioning that alcohol is going to take that pain away. And in that moment, you, you really are just doing the best you can to keep it together for your family, to keep it together for yourself, to not go insane, to not have like complete meltdown. And so you have a drink, somehow you're thinking that wasn't the best I could have done. And and that, I think, is this universal kind of misunderstanding. Like, no, with all the information available to you in that moment, that was the best you could have done. That that was the only thing you could have done. It was not malintended. And so even though maybe some bad stuff comes from that drink and then you go on to have many more than you wanted or whatever the case is, you have to understand that your intentions here are not flawed right? Because we, we, we go into this conversation around whatever addiction it is with this idea that somehow our intentions are flawed and then somehow ourselves are flawed. And then somehow we're creating this whole vision of ourselves. And, and I know I did this for me that I am just a bad person like at my core. And mm-hmm. and I love your work because you unravel that myth, you know? And it the thing is,
1: from, and again, even this, even this myth, from what we saw and understood before, we just thought we were looking at the facts, (laughs) you know what I mean, like, clearly I'm weak, I know better, clearly I'm self-sabotaging, why else would I be doing this, you know, like, from that thinking, it just looks so obvious, but to, to flip that, and to see exactly what you just said, like, no, we're just, we experience life from our moment to moment thinking, we cannot experience life separate from our whatever's there in our minds in that moment and it's like we all have glasses on and we're just seeing out of the glasses you can't take them off so from those glasses if you're wearing red tinted glasses and then you're mad at yourself because everything looks red it's ridiculous and it's just going to make it so much harder to change you know it's going to every because then you feel worse then you need more drinks you know it's like it just, it actually compounds the problem. So yeah, it's so important to start to just see how this works in a, in a clear and accurate way, because it's such an amazing, kind system we've been given. Like the human design is incredible. And when we really kind of come to understand it, we get to work with it rather than trying to manipulate it and fight thoughts and do this and that and change it.
0: I love that. I think that, um, so the first step is, is just basically realizing without anything else that, that you and your actions are not coming from a bad place. You're coming from a place of doing the best you can in the moment with the information you've been given. And then when that sort of, you know, acceptance of, okay, that, gets you out of the cycle of beating yourself up. And by the way, when you're in the cycle of beating yourself up, guess what you do is you drink more because we drink to avoid pain. And so when you get yourself out of the cycle of beating yourself up and you get yourself into a bit of self-acceptance and say, okay, I'm going to realize that my intentions are not bad. They're not flawed. Then you can start to investigate the information you've been given, you know, investigate why are these glasses red? You know, what, What is it that is leading me to believe that in this moment of, you know, parenting hell and work hell and drama and stress that, you know, eating is going to solve it or drinking is going to solve it or smoking is going to solve it. What are the facts, right? And I really like where you go with this too, is, you know, really digging into um, this idea of you have this thought like, okay. Um, and you're going to say this better than I do, but you, you have a thought, whether it's a craving or something, and it takes a lot of energy to try to disprove that thought. And so you get, you give this great technique for actually expending less energy and helping it to more or less let go of you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even
0: a, I mean, a technique is going to take
1: energy, but it's more of just exactly what you're saying. Like that bigger understanding of it. It's like, if we know that everything that moves through us is just it's moving (laughs) a thought feeling it's all the same it's the way i understand it it's all the same it's just a different manifestation of this one big energy that moves through us and it moves through every human being it's not about us it's not personal we all operate in the same way we have this energy that brings thoughts and feelings and all this stuff to life within us and it keeps moving. It's like weather. It keeps on moving and it doesn't affect the sky and our thoughts and feelings. If we see this, we can feel stuff. And we, in our health and our clarity and our peace of mind, we're not affected by that. Then it's like the stuff just goes. (laughs) But what happens, like you said, is we, we put all this energy on, let me grab, oh no, I'm having an urge. you know, And we We bring out this big metaphorical spotlight and we're like shining it on our urge. And this is a little thought that just wants to keep moving, but we're grabbing it by the tail and we're like, no, I'm going to tell you why you're not going to win today. And all the while it's like, we're holding it in place innocently, of course. But you know, when you start to see, wow, all this effort, it kind of requires that we pay a lot of attention to what we're trying to not feel which is kind of awkward and it's kind of like trying to change the weather why would you try to change the weather because you know it's going to change on its own anyway you know it just it just stops making sense and that's what I love that's one of the overlaps that I've seen in your work too it's like it isn't about fighting things it's about seeing it in a way really what I call insight you know but seeing it in a way to where it just doesn't make sense like it used to.
0: Right, right. And I think, you know, that's a big thing about just sort of investigating what are what are your beliefs that are telling you that that drink at the end of a hard day is going to do you any favors. But then also, when you feel that urge, and you've decided, you know, consciously that you, you don't want to have that drink, um, almost, I, and I guess, what is your sort of best advice for how to deal with that, right? Because I do have a lot of readers who have read my work, and they're like, okay, I understand all the facts, right? I understand that, you know, this study said that alcohol actually will make me more stressed over time. And I understand that it's a short term fix. And I understand this, that and the other thing. But the truth is, I just still have this deep craving for a drink in these moments, because I've, I've built up this habit that's been conditioned by five o'clock every single day. I pour myself a drink and I don't even know how to un- unwind at the end of the day without it. So so in that moment, like, how would you tell people to to deal with those feelings?
1: yeah, um, that's a great question, you're right. It's a really, really common question. Um, I I'm not a fan of an in the moment thing because here's the thing. Like in that moment, as we know, like they, their resources are kind of zapped already. They're really caught up in this bad feeling. You know, it's more of a like seeing how this works, but what happens is when you see how this all works in a bigger sense, in that moment, you tend to see through what's going on. You see what's going on in a different way in time. So if you know that, and of course, no, there's so many levels of knowing, but let's say some, you know, we really, this is like beyond logic. It's beyond intellect. It's really deeply kind of seeing how it works. Like we all deeply intuitively know that no matter what we do, we're not going to make it stop raining. It's just not gonna happen. So that's why no one is out trying to make it stop raining. We complain about it and even then we kind of realize this is ridiculous (laughs) I'm complaining about the weather. But we do it anyway. But you know, no one's out really trying to stop it from raining. So because we just get how that works. Or like a nightmare is a great example. When you wake up from a nightmare, you pretty much let it go. It might linger, the feelings linger a little, but you are not. You don't try to solve the fight that you were in in your nightmare when you're awake because <laughs> we just know very deeply how that works. Oh, that's not real. So as we start to see our own thinking that way, like this craving, this strong urge that someone has at five o'clock every night for their drink it is energy moving through them that their mind has has grabbed onto habitually and said, Oh, drink would help this, a drink would fix this, you need a drink, this isn't gonna go away unless you have your drink. Like, but that's all that's just like press and play on a tape recorder. Like it's just this whole thing that starts. And to tell them that in the moment, I don't know, might help, might not, great chance it won't, right? Because they're kind of really in it and they're just lost in the feeling of that. But But to see that in time and really deeply see that, to see that you, the drink is just a conditioned thing. Like you, you tell yourself that, Oh, the drink's going to help because of what we've heard and then conditioned with and all that. But, but it can't really like, like what you need, what you want, that peace of mind, it's in there already. If you're not paying attention to all this, all this pain and discomfort, even if you are paying attention to it, it's going to settle down on its own. It can't not. I mean, thoughts just don't stay there forever. We can't get lost in them. So it's going to work that way. But it's hard because we don't trust it. And then we get more caught up and we'll know. And I don't like this feeling now. And, you know, but the more we just kind of see, okay, that everything is safe. It's just my own thinking. It's my own conditioned mind, And it's totally temporary, totally impermanent. And then it just almost doesn't even feel the cravings kind of don't have to feel that, horrible way like you might still feel it habitually but you know like you know you you feel that craving and it's almost like oh I see you I know what you're doing here and and I'm in charge you know the whole thing starts to change
0: there's a um a way that I I I've, I've just I'm working on my second book and there's a way that I explain this in the second book and it's um you are in – you're the mom, right? And you've got a five-year-old, and the five-year-old is your craving. And the five-year-old wants an ice cream. And if you know it, any kid, whether it's your own or a niece or nephew, they do not yeah. stop. There is not – I mean, they get louder and louder and louder. And they get more and more insistent, and then they start coming up with all of these, but ice cream, but, but we didn't have it yesterday, but, but, you know, Sally got ice cream and I didn't, but it's not fair. Do you remember – like every single – it's reason, you know, and it's this very incessant voice and it's going and going and going. But the difference is that as a mom, you realize, okay, this is annoying, this little kid, but I'm actually in charge. I, I yes. can get my wallet out and buy the ice cream or I cannot. This child does not have any money to buy their own ice cream. And that's the same with, with your craving and with your thought. Like it is loud and it is annoying but you're actually in charge. The problem comes when we as the mom, in this example, think that this kid will never ever be quiet if we don't buy it the ice cream. Or we use the fact that this kid is really yelling as okay, fine, I'm just gonna give in. Two things happen. Number one is that kid learns. (laughs) Oh, okay, the louder I am, the more ice cream I'm gonna get, you know? equally, if you say, okay, anything you say, you can sit there and you can talk as long as you can talk. I've made my decision. I'm not giving into this. I'm not going to have an ice cream and I'm just going to go along my, my way. I'm just going to hear it. It's over here, but I've, I've said, this is not something that can make me do anything. Then all of a sudden, um, that, that, that kid or that craving becomes quieter over time because they exhaust themselves because it does run because it is moving because nothing lasts forever and none of our thought process lasts forever. And all of a sudden that kid realizes, okay, when, when she says no, she actually means it. And, and I'm not going to get that ice cream. Right. But I think what you said, Amy was so powerful is we have a fear that it isn't safe to say no to our cravings. Like we believe that these cravings and these feelings and these thoughts are so powerful that they're going to take us over so we do one of two things we either give in because we're so afraid that it will never stop or we fight it head on right and imagine if you started arguing with that five-year-old right they would come back every single thing you said you would say no ice cream's going to ruin your dinner no no I promise I'm not you know you can imagine how the fight could escalate and escalate and then all of a sudden you spend a half an hour fighting with a five-year-old and that's what happens to us because we've been told that the way to deal with the craving is to come at it head on, and repeat some mantras, and tell ourselves, we're not going to do it, we're stronger than that, and like, as you and I, from our experience, can can say, like, that didn't work long term, like, yeah, we were successful in some of those fights, but the five-year-old was successful in a lot of those fights, too. Yeah, I have a five-year-old, <laughs>
1: <So that's laughs> really? very close to home, and you're absolutely right, <laughs> on the ice cream front, and on the happy front, but what's interesting is what you said, like, you're right, we have those two choices, we're either going to give in because we think we kinda have to, or we're gonna fight it, and both of those make it harder. Now, in the end of the day, we always have control. So all the time clients will say to me, I gave in to an urge. I just made my habit stronger. Like they're so afraid, right? Like that they they woke up this monster in their head. And it's like, well, either way, even if you Even if you gave your five-year-old the ice cream and then he comes back louder the next day, you're still in control. He's just going to be a little louder, you know? So that's the good thing to know. Like our control never goes away, but you're right because both of those options, they make it harder for us in the short term.
0: And so that third option, um, how is that for you? Like how is the, you know, you talk about it really eloquently, like the letting it go, the sitting with it, the whatever it is, like how, how does that work kind of inside inside you when you deal with those cravings
1: yeah um it's so it's so hard to put words around and I think sometimes like you know it's different for everyone because when you really have an insight about it being safe everyone's going to feel that kind of in their own way but um For me, it was all kinds of different things, like, and part of it was, like, excitement. Like, when I really kind of had that click where I saw, oh, I am always in charge, no matter how loud and bossy my head gets, it was almost like, I mean, it was everything, but it was everything from, like, oh, I hear you, and, you know, okay, I'm in charge, like, but still a little, like, nervous, to completely at peace and feeling really separate from it. And those moments were few and far between, but had that experience to almost like excitement like, Oh, cool. Yeah, go ahead. And you yell all you want. I'm not giving you the ice cream. <laughs> and, that, and again, for me, I probably was saying that I'm not having the ice cream. <laughs> right. So you yell all you want brain, but it's not happening today. And, and so it's like one of the metaphors I use a lot. We have a, my five-year-old has a, we have a neighbor who is his age and she comes over and she, puts her nose on our window like this and like looks in our house to see if he can come out and play and you you know because messes up the windows but anyway you just want to like take her shoulders and like okay Allie just back up like you're a little too close to even see anything and that's kind of how we can get with that right like that five o'clock craving can be like we're like Allie with our nose in the window or it can be over here and we're feeling it or it can be out here and you're like oh that's nothing like it used to be or and then and then
0: it stops coming around right it's so powerful and i think you're right like this this conversation is interesting because this stuff is hard to put into words it it really is because it's it's um it's almost magical in a way i feel the same when when i had these insights and epiphanies and and realized all of these things and they kind of stacked up and all of this deep seated feelings of of intense need for alcohol let go of me it felt really magical. It wasn't linear. It wasn't like okay, you do this and you feel this. It was like you do all of these things and then everything shifts, but none of these things actually connect. And so it's it's interesting because it is really hard to put into into words. Um, but I do think you know one thing that that I found really useful and actually has been backed up just by lots of studies is this idea of just really observing. You know, and I think you talk about this and and you have a chapter, the power and the pause, and just saying like. I'm going to stop and observe and I might give into it. I'm not going to like put a huge fast, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to get into the ring. I'm just going to yeah. wait a second. You know, can you talk about that power in the pause a little bit? Yeah, it's, um,
1: it just starts to show you that you can do that. I think that's a huge thing it does for people. It's like before, I don't know, like I can remember having these urges to binge and I would try to... Waited out or pause, but without the understanding, all it felt like is I was white knuckling. I was like just trying to distract myself. It was so high energy. There was no relaxation in it. It was like, oh my gosh, is it going to go away? What's going to happen? Can I do this? Can I do this? You know, it was a horrible feeling. And of course, that feeling makes you want to do your thing even more. um, But there's something about as people start to see this, to be able to take a peaceful pause. And just maybe for the first time really see, well, that's possible. Like, again, this can be over here just doing what it's doing. The kid's talking about ice cream. And the mom truly can just be okay. <laughs> like, they don't have to touch each other, you know. But in with our habits, it it sometimes is the first time for people when they've really – not just sort of put the blinders on and gone for the drink or the food or whatever. Like they've just said, oh, I can feel this and not do anything. I just think that in and of itself, it invites that magic in. It brings more insights because then all of a sudden, I don't know, you know, exactly how it would go for someone. But for me, it was like starting to just see that, oh, my gosh, this I actually am in control. I just didn't really know how to be in control. You know, I didn't have the understanding to back it up.
0: There was this amazing study, and it was done, um, I'm going to butcher, I'm not going to even guess at the university, but uh, it was done where they just invited smokers into a room, and they had them sit, and they had had them abstain from cigarettes for 24 hours before, so all these smokers were having really intense physical cravings, and so they had them sit there, and they had them, they all had a fresh pack of cigarettes, they all unwrapped it and then they had to wait a minute and just sit with the feeling of really wanting that cigarette. And then they had to smell it and sit with the feeling. And then they had to get one out, pack their pack. And then they had to sit with the feeling, get one out, sit with the feeling. Uh, light the lighter, sit with the feeling. And they didn't actually get to smoke it during this experiment. And then they walked outside and they all lit up, of course, because they're like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting with this feeling. And it's it's just building and building and building. But the miracle happens with, during that 40 minutes of sitting with those feelings, you they went and tracked these smokers over the next however long and they cut back on their smoking by like 40 to 60% without any effort whatsoever because they'd taken the fear out of the craving. Because when they're sitting there with that craving, instead of feeling like this is overpowering me and I'm just going to give into it, they said, how does it feel? And guess what? It wasn't as bad as any of them had imagined. So then when the cravings came up, subsequently, again, the magic happened, they weren't aware of this, but they were just kind of like, okay, it's not terrifying, you know, because I used to akin it to, um, you know, I'd have have the craving for for a drink. And then I had the desire not to drink. And I felt like damned if I did and damned if I didn't like if I if I didn't have the drink, the the drum almost wasn't going to stop beating, it was going to be building and building and building. But then if I did, I knew I was going to be somewhere where I didn't want to be because I wasn't even enjoying drinking by the time I stopped. It was I had too high of a tolerance. It was just making me feel bad. Right. So both of these things were like I felt such in a, in a spot. And I think often when you have these opposing forces, whether it's, you know, um, anything, I mean, even from from government or whatever, you need almost this third way to come through. And it's just sitting with it and realizing that you are in control. And it doesn't sound like it's going to work. That's the funny thing about it. Like, okay, how is, how is just sitting and saying, how does it feel to really want this beer? How does it feel? How does it smell? And just sitting with it and pausing before you actually do it doesn't mean don't do it at that moment. Like, you know, get, be gentle with yourself. But it's, it's phenomenally powerful, this idea.
1: It is. It reminds me of like, you know how when you repeat a word like 300 times, it loses all its meaning? It's just a bunch of weird sounds. Like, that's kind of like, I think we get this instant, our brain like goes into all these memories and how you're going to feel. It's already telling you, you're already relaxed when you decide you're going to drink. You haven't, e- that's the interesting part. Me too with food. Like, it hasn't even entered your body. So, it is not that substance alone. You know, it is all this other stuff. So, so it's like, it's like already, you know, your your mind instantly goes back to these memories and how great it's going to be and all this stuff. And when we're in that, that's super hard. But when you sit with it, that waxes and wanes a little bit. And especially if you know that it will, that's the thing. I think having an understanding of how this works is so helpful. If you know, no, that a super intense craving, it almost... Kind of can 't last that long without us and innocently, but without us really going back to it and like in hindsight, you can see how maybe like how am I doing? oh my gosh, is it still here? How am I feeling now? How long has it been? you know like all that again, or our willpower, whatever, all of that just keeps bringing it back but Like, I remember hearing that an emotion is in your brain for like 90 seconds, like the chemicals, the path it takes, it's about 90 seconds. And that makes sense. Because if you look at very little kids who don't hold on to things yet, they throw temper tantrums, they feel it for their 90 seconds. When they get older, of course, they can keep it going. But, you know, like it just, it wants to move. So cravings and urges and all of that do too. And yeah, like like being able to it's like repeating a word a million times, like it kinda loses it to just sit there and be like, Oh, okay, here's the smell of the beer and I'm not drinking it. It does, it just it invites in so much magic and just really leaves you seeing it in a different way.
0: That's so cool. I think you're right. I think one of the biggest aha moments for me was when I asked I asked myself, when do I actually start to feel relaxed? And um And it wasn't after I drank the four ounces of wine, that first drink. It certainly wasn't that. And then I I kind of backed it up. It wasn't even after the first sip. I realized that, you know, after a bunch of kind of self-experimentation, I started to feel relaxed when I opened the cabinet, when I was opening the cabinet and getting out the glass. That is when it was like, ah. And I was like, wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not the alcohol. That's something in my own mind, you know, and then you start observing that with other people. People, you know, they arrive at the pub after work and people are already in a good mood. They're just being there, just, you know, knowing whatever that they're going to end this craving, you know, because the craving obviously has a physical aspect as well. And so when you, because um, all sorts of, you know, even I assume if you're you're binge eating, there's, there's dopamine that's released and, and you you create this entire physical chain reaction too. But that's, That's so interesting when you start to see that and you start to say, okay, okay, this is not, um, this is not as, as scary as I thought it was, but that's really cool.
1: I've heard that from a heroin addict who said he felt better calling up his dealer. Yeah, He instantly felt better already calling his dealer. So even things, you know, the things that are supposedly the most physically addicting substances on earth, like even then, I mean, we don't the substance in a vacuum. We feel right. it through our thinking and memories and all that. So yeah, it's it's huge to
0: see that. Yeah, it's amazing. I wish there was some way to to bottle the feeling of anticipation. You know, because that's that's sort of sort of what it is that that gives you that. Um, but yeah, I th- I read another study. I'm sure you've read it too. But about how um, when heroin addicts have gone into prison and they were completely separated from the substance and there was no option to do it, they had few to no withdrawal symptoms. Yet if they were even years later released and they went back into their old haunt and they tried not to do it, the cravings were as intense as ever and they hadn't put heroin in their body for, for years in some instances. So yes, yeah, so much is happening in your mind. And so if you can really, as Amy says, sit back and, and just say, okay, I'm going to watch how this chatterbox works and another thing that I love and and we'll just touch on this before we close but but you kind of say okay identify the stories that this voice is telling you so that you can separate it from the true you right so how does that how does that how do you know that it's the voice the five-year-old instead of Annie Grace you know
1: yeah. Um, I think it can be helpful sometimes to do that. Um, I, one thing I will say, like, I I think sometimes when we get too caught up in the content of our thinking, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say like get too, you know, it's not like write down all your thoughts, because as you know, the conscious ones, that's only the tip of the iceberg. And that's not gonna do very much. But, but yeah, if you're noticing this stuff, I mean, the way you know, I think it's just in the feeling of it. Right. You get tense. There's something there. to me like the feeling of a craving or an urge or stress or anything. Anger is a helpful sign there to show us that there's a story floating through our heads that we don't realize is a made up story. Right. I think it's just the coolest system in the world. That's your check engine light. Right. Your check right. engine light just came on. You don't want to see it on. But thank God you have it. And I'll pull over let your car cool down (laughs) and call somebody who knows how to diagnose it, you know, but it's like, it's just that sign. So I think, um, yeah, you know, when you feel that tension, you feel whatever it is you feel, you can kind of start to a lot of times they just pop out of the woodwork, those old familiar stories. And, you know, with a lot of the binge eaters I work with, it's just the stuff like, oh, I shouldn't have had that, you know, you start off your day with pancakes instead of granola or whatever their beliefs are about what's healthy and suddenly there's all this or you catch a reflection in the mirror or something and it just snowball you know tips off all of that thinking and it is it is good to just let it kind of come to awareness when it does and just see it for what it is
0: I recently had a a big group going through a 30-day um alcohol experiment is what I'm I'm calling it just experimenting 30 days without alcohol, see how you feel, but go into it with a mindset that's really about what you, what you gain, not what you give up and and being really positive. And I had everybody going into it, write me or, and say, okay, what are they most afraid of? And it's amazing because we think that this is our fear, like it's personal to us and it certainly feels that way. But I mean, of the 700 responses I got, you could categorize them into six or eight things and they were all the same. And it was that the mind, not Annie's mind, but the mind giving this specific fear here or there. And, you know, when you think, oh, I'm never going to be able to relax without alcohol, or I'm going to be such a bore, or none of my friends will invite me out, or I'm going to, um, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night, or I'll be really boring. uh, Other people will be boring to me or what, you know, all of these, these things, they feel real. But but they're really just the story that makes you uncomfortable and um And then, when you examine them compared to kind of you know objective evidence, you see, okay, that's that's not actually real, But I think becoming really aware of of those stories and being able to sort of separate that from from the true you, because the true you is the one that really wants um the health and wellness, you know that's why you have the conflict because you've got you've got this being inside of you that wants to take care of your body and take care of yourself. And then you've got this, you know, all of these things where you've gotten confused, where you've just kind of gotten off path. And I think that the conflict comes from that, but then also the conflict comes from the fact that we really beat ourselves up for the confusion instead Mm -hmm. of accepting that, okay, we're humans and that has happened. You know, it's not, it's certainly not our fault and it wasn't our intention and there was no bad intention. I don't think, you know, anybody said, okay, I'm going to really screw my life up and go get addicted to something. You know, it was just like, not something we consciously, I'm going to mess up all my family and friends. I'm going to show them. I'm going to destroy myself, you know, just doesn't happen. So kind of having that forgiveness and awareness that we're not, we're not doing this to ourselves intentionally. And then from there, from that point of kind of self acceptance, you can start to unravel all these stories. And I love what you said about the check engine light, like, all right, you're starting to feel something bad. Let's, let's just take a pause and see what story are you telling yourself? You know, it's such a, it's all just
1: built on innocent misunderstanding. You know, if we knew how it worked or again, like little kids, they don't get caught up in this stuff. They feel all kinds of life, but they don't get caught up in it. Like we do with the habitual stuff, like little kids before they start thinking a lot, you know, and identifying with me and all that. So like, you know, one and a half and and younger, like life just kind of flows and and it flows through us. Like we, we don't lose that. That doesn't expire when we become adults. It's just that we we identify, like you said, with all that, those thoughts, we think that's us. And it's only us. And this is my thought. And it's not my thought. It's, it's thought, you know, it's universal thought. It's just thought showing up. And it's just amazing to get to like, have a feel for how that works a little bit, because everything just relaxes. And then you're like, yeah, this is just a simple misunderstanding. And like you said, it's not my fault. I didn't do this on purpose. It doesn't mean we're weak. It doesn't mean any of that. And just, just letting it be easy like that, letting it be simple and kind of letting go on all the tension and the trying to fix it and everything. Things start to kind of just write themselves, you know, like you do, you bounce back, you notice that you're resilient you realize you can pause all the things we've been talking about. You realize thoughts do pass. You realize you are okay. You know, like, we have insights. We're built to have those kind of insights. So we just need to do our best to see what we can to be able to get out of the way and then trust, you know, that the system's going to come help us out.
0: Right. I heard it explained um once. Well, it might have been in your book, but I'm not sure. But basically the idea was you're driving down a highway and all the cars are passing, passing, and, and the trees are passing. And you're just having this very experience of just driving and you're and you're just like not really um you know you're not attaching to anything you're just there and you're seeing the colors and it's sensory input and it's great. And then all of a sudden you notice one of the cars on the other side of the road looks like you know your ex-boyfriend's car and it looks like there's someone in the passenger seat or whatever. And all of a sudden you're like and then you're just looking at that car. And then even when that car is passed, you all you see is that car and you've stopped seeing the beautiful trees and you have stopped seeing all the colors of the other cars because you've stopped on that thought. And that's so often what we do with, you know, this idea you go out to the bar and you're trying to just drink a soda and lime. And then someone says something like, Oh, come on, that's boring. And then all of a sudden like, I'm going to be boring if I'm not a drinker. And you just stop there. And you stop having this, this multi-sensory experience of just being in a social place with a lot of amazing people, which is a great experience on its own. You stop having that because you've stopped on that one, one thought and you've really gotten stuck there. And so the idea of just saying, okay, that was a thought and and I'm just going to let that go for a minute and just like be back here, um, And, yeah, I'll deal with it if it it really is important. But guess what? Then it just passes and then you realize, wow, that really wasn't important. It's really fascinating. To see that we bounce back like that, that we can't, you know, that if we just say, oh, okay,
1: now I'm stuck on this thought. Okay. Like there's nothing we have to do to reverse that because it's in our nature to just for that thought to keep on going if we're not stopping it and replaying it a million times. So, Yeah. yeah, just seeing that. Our resilience and that bounce back that that our mind does naturally. It's awesome.
0: I love that. Like it's it's in our nature. So I think it was in your book you wrote something, like the natural state of the mind is peace. And mm-hmm. and I really at first took kind of issue with that because I was like, really? Hmm, my natural state of mind does not feel very peaceful all the time, Amy. And um, and so <laughs> I was really kind of digging into that. I was talking about it with my husband, I was like, How is this? How is this? And um, we recently had a little baby, right? And she's three months old. And if you look at her, her natural state of mind is peace. Before the language came in, before the identification came in, before anything else came in, you're absolutely right. The natural state of mind is peace. Like it's just unbelievably true. And I was like, wow, that's so true. And then I was also discussing with my husband and, and we were kind of talking over this concept and we both had been through bad breakups way back when before we were married and i remember that when i was dealing with a really bad breakup or anything traumatic in your life you would wake up in the morning and you would have probably five or six seconds of just peace where you um didn't you didn't feel anything it wasn't it, it wasn't bad and then all of a sudden you would remember what was happening you'd remember the story of your life And all of a sudden, it was very much like uh, you weren't feeling that peace anymore. But guess what? When you first woke up, before you told yourself this story, it was peaceful, right? So fascinating. So I'm a convert. I believe you. That's my favorite evidence, too.
1: Like Right when you wake up and right as you're falling asleep, when all this conceptual thought stuff, as habitual as it might be, when all that falls away, everyone feels peace. everyone you know but sometimes you don't notice it and it's very easy like anything when you believe or when you're just kind of thinking huh I think my natural state is anxiety (laughs) or I think my natural state is whatever you'll find tons of evidence for that but it's so cool to see the other way and then you see evidence of that
0: yeah and then you start to because it is it can be so like tiny that you don't notice it until you start to make you know more room for it but in order to do that you have to sort of say um you know is is this story about whatever I'm telling myself, I'm, I'm going to be a bore if I don't drink, you know, is that true or not true? And it's not like you have to argue with it or answer it. You just have to ask the question, really. Just give the question to your mind. Just give the question to yourself. Is that, is that really true? All right. I'm going to worry about that later and just keep on going, right? And just kind of let it go. But it's brilliant. Oh, very cool. Well, Amy, I mean, this has been awesome. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. And Yeah, if you have not read Amy's book, it's The Little Book of Big Change by Dr. Amy Johnson. And it's phenomenal. It's the no willpower approach to breaking any habit. And the brilliant thing about this book is that it works, you know, I think for anything that's a habit. And we talk, you know, you get confused with habit and addiction and all these words. But really, it's something that has become below your conscious awareness. So something that's habitual is something that you're doing without necessarily thinking about it. And I think the addiction part for me, at least how I define it, it comes in when you become conscious that you don't want to be doing that thing and you feel trapped. So it's something that you no longer want to be doing that you that you feel a strong urge or desire to do. But that did start as a habit, like all addictions, like they start as a habit. And I think the pain of the addiction just comes when you're in battle with it, because that battle is, is quite painful. But it's all semantics anyway. But anyway, the book is, is phenomenal. And Amy, it's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, Thank you.
1: Much, yeah, it's a great conversation,
0: yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, well, have a great day! Thank you, you too. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, as it really helps us spread the word.